You're listening to Earnestly Speaking, the only weekly podcast that covers friends, foes, and anything that goes. And now, for your badass host, Ernest Owens. And we're back with another episode of Earnestly Speaking with your host, Ernest Owens, myself. <laughs> well, it has been quite a week. Um, I had party like a rock star for the entire week, yelling and rocking out. And I did not lose my voice, but it was just, it's been a week. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's, I guess it's about to be fall. I'm still holding on to the summer a little bit. Like I'm still holding on to as much of it as I can, given everything that has been um, transpiring. I mean, officially today, or I guess this week, I guess I'm telling the time of the, the podcast recording, but by the time you listen to this podcast, um, the first day of school starts at Temple. So there's a lot of uh, Temple Owls and Penn Quakers and everyone starting school. I'd already started teaching at Cheney last week, so Cheney already started like a week earlier. But most um, colleges, I believe, in Philly and schools begin officially um, at the start of today, um, if you're listening, if you're the first to listen to Ernestly Speaking's episode, you know, Monday's the day. So it's been interesting, um, like looking at it, like, I'm like, oh my God, school is like starting again. Like everybody's like ending their internships. I'm just like, but we still have somewhere to go. I feel like that's, that's my opinion. But I was like, okay. Um, I've been teaching first week, um, teaching at chain was great. We had convocation for the freshmen last week. Um, you know, I had my Annalise Keating energy, um, which, you know, the students was feeling, it was a good class. The class was, was good. I have like, you know, I'm teaching all of my sections now on one day. So I'm only going to campus one day a week, which is on Mondays. Mm. I'm drinking this new drink. I'm like, I always feel like I'm drinking something new. It is called Happy Being Healthy, which is this like peach rose white tea. And you can get it online, but it's like super healthy. Um, it has like turmeric, elderberry, um, vitamin D3, all these type of um, polynols that are really healthy. It's like tea with benefits. And it's it's really good. Um I got. I heard about it online. I went to an event and I tried it at an event, and then I looked about it online, and now I got like a subscription. And they have it in like three different options. So they have like a peach rose white tea version, but they also have a blueberry tea version, and it's like a cucumber, like like really cucumber juice vibe or whatever. They have an option like that. So it's like three of them, but my two favorite ones lean more fruitier. So I have the peach rose white tea and I have the blueberry one and they're really good they're like they're really good they come in sets so like there's a bottle of like um I believe 12 or you can get a you can get like 12 of them or you can get a subscription for like 24 of them or whatnot and so I've I'm trying the blueberry and the white peach I feel like the cucumber is probably gonna be like a I don't want to say a v8 but it's gonna feel like something less fruitier and I don't know I just feel like it'll just be like a you know, cucumber water vibe. And I'm like, eh. like, like it's like, like a cucumber infused tea, which is probably refreshing, but I want something a little bit more fruity in my opinion. 
So that's happening. Um, This week also starts Mr. Johnson's first day as a master's student at um, John Hopkins, which is also uh, another college. It's like opening again. Everything's starting to, on Monday. So um, he's starting his master's program. It's going to be virtual. So he's we're not going to Baltimore. But it seems like Baltimore has been a theme, right? Like this whole summer feels like everything's been going down in Baltimore. But he is starting his master's program there, which is super exciting. It's in a leadership um, program. Um, it's a specific type of uh, career professional leadership uh, master's program that he's doing. And it's super dope. So I'm, of course, proud of him. And we did a lot of celebrating this week, uh, this weekend, um, as he began to kick off that expiration while also working. So, like, I tell people all the time, this graduate school thing, listen, the, the new wave, to be honest, is trying to do it without having to be in a classroom. If you can avoid it. Now, if you are someone who has to, like, of course, go to law school, X, Y, and Z, get an MBA. I know some people who do MBA programs where they're working simultaneously. Hats off to them. But if you can do, if you're interested in getting a master's degree in a different type of field or something more professional-leaning, there are lots of great programs out there that do not require you to have to do like stop everything and go for two, three years. Because who has time to do that? Especially when you're like young and you're still working and having your career. What had appealed me the most about my program with USC when I got my master's was very much so a situation where I was able to have both. Like I could say, look, I can work, I can write, I can do all my journalism, but at the same time, I had the ability to also go back to school and, and do it in a way that did not feel so disruptive. So, um, you know, I tried it and it worked for me. I think he saw how I was able to both hustle my husband to do both. And I think he was like, you know, if there was something similar of interest to him, you know, he'll see where it goes. And he did. So the cool part is he's he's in there. He's, you know, rocking it out. I think he's doing like, I think he's doing like one course or two courses a semester. Um, which is what I did too. So it was kind of like I finished my program like within a year and a half. So I think that's about how long he's doing it. But I didn't skip anything. I didn't skip summers. I I went all the way in. So that was a different level of energy. But I don't know. He probably might do the same depending on what he thinks the, the courses are asking of him. But I had a really good time though. I think I enjoyed my master's program academically more than I, I liked um, undergraduate. Like I loved undergraduate for the social culturalness of it all. But I think academically when I think about like courses and the, the classes I took I feel like I learned more or was more in in passionate about what I learned in my master's program compared to undergrad I feel like undergrad was just like you know I you know there were some classes I will never forget but it was just it felt like at some point I think after like sophomore year it became like just take this class, study, take the quiz, get the get the grade, get the A, keep it moving. Like I was just in that type of mode. And so a lot of classes I took like at the last two years of my senior year were not as memorable. They just felt like get it done because most of my learning was coming from like internships I was doing and fellowships and things like that. So it was a different focus altogether, but it was still valuable. It was just that most of the networking and things took I think prominence over like the academic learning aspect, but my master's program, I think part of it was that I was learning something I wanted to learn, right? It was a bigger investment of my time, but it was also like 
concentrate on what was relevant to me and applicable to my skills. So everything just felt better. Like my GPA was super higher and everything just seemed to be more, you know, just, it just, I just breezed through those courses and just loved it and was more interested in it. And, you know, I did extra, I was just really, I really enjoyed my program. And I think part of it, because I was doing it during the pandemic, like in the throes of the pandemic, we're still in the pandemic, but because I was in the throes of it, I feel like though that, you know, I didn't go out a lot and I was, you know, during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, I did not, we did not go out. We were not those type of people. We were not going to like restaurants and stuff all the time. We was really doing a lot of cooking. You know, TV was kind of like meh, you know, it was, you know, there was like a couple of specials and documentaries. So I was like, what was I doing during the pandemic that kept me going? And I think that the major things that I can think of that is not now was one, my master's program, just reading and studying and just doing that. And that kept my mind focused Two, playing the wedding. You know, when we was playing our wedding, that was like a, an extracurricular activity within itself. And then three, I was it was getting my book together, my first book together, getting the case for council culture, um, you know, getting the getting the book deal and writing and the proposals that as well. So those three things, I think, were the things that I was like when people were like, well, what were, I felt like I was very busy without going to events. What was keeping me preoccupied? It was that. So it was an interesting time. I don't know if I would be able to personally pull pull off going back to school and doing I, like if it was a the pandemic was terrible and I have to put that disclaimer before I say this, but in some ways in my, for me, my personal life, the pandemic allowed me to reset in a way that, you know, I mean, I was blessed and I was fortunate you know, that's not everyone's story. And it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not one of these, you got to hustle hard, you know, work harder. That's not what I'm saying. But for me, the pandemic allowed me to reset, from everything I had um, going on professionally. So like, you know, it allowed me to have time to focus on other things for what it was worth. So, yeah. Um, This whole week was the ONA convention. So that's why I have lost my voice because I was out. I was loud. I was, I was, I was, it was a, it was a lot going on. Um, but I'm like spent the weekend resting up. I've spent, you know, everything just chilling. I'm staying in the house. I'm just relaxing because uh uh I, it was like every night it was something. It was a party, it was a reception, it was something going on. Um so ONA convention was dope. It was the online news association, which as you all know, it came to Philadelphia, which it hadn't been in Philly in like years. Um, as president of Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, we were one of their sponsors, but we collaborated and did a lot of great work with so many other national journalists and people who were in town. Um, one of the great things was we had a workshop that I helped co-facilitate with the Journalism Accountability Watchdog Network. You know, that's John. We got together and um, created a focus group to engage black and brown journalists about the importance of unity and how they can locally create these safe spaces locally without, you know, relying on these national organizations. Because as you know, these national affinity groups, you know, from NABJ, AJA, NHA, you know, they, they're great, right? But a lot of times, a lot of the needs that they have, you know, directly does not necessarily work at the speed or the interest, immediate interest of local groups. So, you know, while you could be aligned 
in your you know mission the the speediness of needs that are uniquely local that needs to be united locally so we did what we did in philadelphia was we connected we all collaborated we have our own individual organizations but we formed a coalition so that we can address um racial inequity and injustice that is happening in these newsrooms and also in the media ecosystem around right this is a community and it was a beautiful thing you know it was it was good to hear and see people share their experiences and just understand why we're necessary and why we're relevant of course that came with pushback from the big the big old you know big media as i call it in philly the philadelphia inquirer their leadership is not a fan of what we do and you can already imagine why a google search would tell you a thousand reasons why they don't like us but at the end of the day, it only further proves why we're necessary, why we should exist. And that's hard, you know, being in a position where you have to, you know, do that. But it's necessary. There, there are too many black and brown journalists out here who are not getting fair, you know, opportunities and access. They're facing retaliation in their newsrooms, anti-blackness, colorism. It's a big deal. And so we're necessary. And I think what we've done here in Philadelphia, we're trying to inspire other cities and regions to take shape. And they are, they're taking notes, they're checking on it and we're, we're, we're blowing up and we're expanding. So I'm super excited about it. Um, what I also loved about the convention was of course the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, PBJ, we threw our big, huge pool party. Shout out to the people who listen to this podcast and you all know who you are, um, you know, who I, you know, told about this pool party. It was dope. It was a beautiful black affair. Um, of black journalists and people from all over that was able to come. We had over 150 people. We had the pool party at the AKA in University City. Um, and we also had sponsor uh, catering from Garza's Catering um, with Garza's events. So Jose Garza's Catering was incredible. We also had a, a cool new liquor sponsor, um, Union Forge Vodka, who provided the lovely vodka and made these great punches that went with it. And people, it was a vibe. You know, it was on a Thursday and everyone was worried about the rain and things. But what I love about the AKA, uh, and we was in university, we was at level 28. They have that lovely level 28 where it's that beautiful, you know, infinity pool that's indoors. You have the outside terrace and then you have other um, spots. Um, but it was very spacious. And so people was able to space out, have cocktails, have a vibe. And, and and eat and be merry and we also had and we had great support from our lovely friends Cashman Associates and Snack PR who um, were the big huge like you know support to put this together um, and it's great we've been doing this with in collaboration with Cashman Associates and um, working with them they've been helping to sponsor this event for for years it's become an annual tradition at the at PABJ. And this year, I just felt like it was just like one of the best pool parties ever because of just how important it was this year of all years. And it happened during the ONA convention. And for many people who went, um, they said it was their favorite like reception, even though it wasn't initially like in our head a reception, but it, I, it was. And so it became something that was special. So we took some pictures and we had a good time. Mm. This is really good. Um, so... That, you know, MABJ, PABJ convention was great. I bumped into some, I bumped into some people from um, NABJ who were there, a couple of, um, you know, folks. It's the first time I've bumped into some of these traders. I'm sorry, people. 
since I have been there. I haven't been to a convention all this year. The ONA convention has been my first. And then, you know, in the next couple, like a week or half later, the upcoming week and a half, I'm going to be at um, NOGJA, which is the Association of LGBTQ Journalists. They're having a convention this year at the Lowe's. The ONA convention was in downtown Marriott, which I get why people have conventions there. I get it. I don't know about the hotels. I've heard mixed reviews about the hotels. I've never stayed in the Marriott Hotel um, in... I haven't stayed in Marriott Hotel in that 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 particular downtown Marriott Hotel. I haven't stayed. I've went to several conferences and conventions um, and, and galas and things there, but I've never been there um, at a hotel room. But I get why people like it because it is a big, huge space. It's it's meant for conventions. It's, it's absolutely meant for people to have conferences and things like that. You can you can tell that is the hot spot. But the Lowe's, I suppose, is as well. And so there are people having conventions at the Lowe's. And so NOGJ is having it there. And it's just like, wow. But it's interesting because, well, <laughs> it's like, wow, these are two different hotels, two different hotels um, for starters, but just the different crowds. Because the online news association is very like, you have a lot of techie people. There are journalists, of course, but there are also some people that are like very high tech in media, social media. So it's, it's like part of it is a very like webby, geeky, like, convention uh, for tech people. So AI and chat GPT were the hot topics. And then you have, um, you know, organizations like NLGJ, which is more of an affinity group where the context of their, their conference is focused on inclusion and LGBTQ issues and things. So it's a little bit more, um, I don't want to say we're personable, but it just is more comfortable. I would definitely say more comfortable. Um, going to. Um, And I'm going to be doing a workshop myself um, while I am there. Of course, you all know that I'll be, I'm going to be honored. I'm going to win my first ever NLGJ award, which I'm super excited about. And then I'm also going to have an author's um, celebration. So there is the Authors Cafe, which is a showcase of authors, um, LGBTQ authors and whatnot that are going to be there to promote their books and whatnot. So I was one of the authors that was selected to talk about the case of a council culture and educate people about that. So I was super excited to be um, one of the people, you know, a part of it. So, cause you know, the thing is when I initially, when I was in PAB, you know, when I was a member of NABJ, I was in the process of getting ready to be a part of the author showcase at NABJ. And then when everything went down with them, you know, that went down the window. And so I was like, damn, I really want to have at least one convention where I can showcase my book. And ONA doesn't really do author showcases, but NLGJ do. So when I had the opportunity to be a part of that, that was just like everything. So I have a purpose at this upcoming convention. And it's going to be like early September. I have a lot of, I have a lot of, of reason to do it. So I'm super excited about that. Um, So... And other things that's been going on this week. So people have been asking about my nails. These nail, this nail design is called Cat Eye. Um, for folks who are in the nail game, okay, y'all know what Cat Eye is. But for folks who don't know, um, it's a powder dip, which I've only been doing powder dip designs. Um, <clears throat> they paint it over with something, um, I some type of polish. I don't want to call it, I don't know what types of things. I don't want to misquote. But they put... Um, 
a particular like black covering and coating. It's a very, it's a, listen, I'll say this much. I didn't realize how much patience that I have getting my nails done that a lot of people don't have. Um, I just treat it as like a, I'm just relaxing. She's dipping my nails five dozen times. She's putting on the, the, the things she's layering. She's putting it back in the UVA, the, you know, the U light thing. I mean, she's just doing her thing and I'm not paying any, like, I'm not realizing how much of a process it is, but some people who I've been speaking to who get their nails done, they're like, they don't really have that much patience. They just want the little polish. They want the little UV. They don't have the time to just go through that. I'm like, well, listen, patience make diamonds over here, baby. Um, you, you, if you want to get a nails that look this good, you're going to have to, you know, it's, it's, it's going to, you know, take a little bit. But one of the things about me, one of the things I'm, I, I'm, I, as far as my nail, like everyone's like, well, I used to be like, my, you know, I do whatever to my nails. But actually, when I started thinking about that, I was like, let me hold up. Let me, let me clarify. So one thing I'm never going to probably do is I'm never growing out my nails. I, I don't like long nails for me um, for various reasons. One, I'm a writer. So keyboard typing, I, you know, second, well, let me not. Be, well, I'll keep it, you know, P, I'll keep it G rated. But just think about it with long nail. Well, some people don't have this. Well, I'll just say this, that in other activities that I want to be able to perform, <laughs> I, long nails would be a detriment to me performing those things, whether that's in the house, the bed, the, the keyboard, the newsroom, the office, whatever. Wherever I'm at, long nails could be detrimental to any of the things that I like to do for me. So that's one thing. I'm never growing my nails out. The second thing is I don't think I would add things to the nails. Like I know some people get their nails bejeweled. I don't think I need all that. I don't, I don't need all that. I feel like... What I try to try to do is find very visually stunning nails that do not require me to bejewel them, to lengthen them, to do anything outside of the surface of the nail. So I'm big on that. And then also I'm big on like powder dip to protect my actual real nails. I don't have any. Um, oh, yeah. I would never do clip ons. That's that's not for me. Um, I will never do clip ons. I will never. um yeah, I think those are the major things. I would never grow my nails out. I would never bejewel them. And I would never do clip nails, like clip-on nails. And I will never not do powder dip. Like the days of gel. Like when I first started, I did gel. But then I was hearing stories about how eventually gel by itself would be a problem. Um, I never did nail polish because it's just, it's just no. But I've always been big on powder dip. I've been doing powder dip for over a year now. Um, and that has been the best things for my nails. So, yeah, that's my, I think those are my, my pros and my nose. <laughs> um, but cat, but anyway, but cat eye, what it is is that they, there's like a little device that shifts over the paint on the nails that helps move it naturally metallically to give it this ability to have this reversal shine and glare. It's a technique Shouts to nail technician. Shouts to my girl V at Lux Nails because she takes care of them, my nails. And I go to Lux Nails in University City. Do not try to do a walk-in. I mean, you might be able to pull off a walk-in, but honestly, try to get an appointment. I think all the nail techni technicians there are good. So if you don't get my girl, because she's kind of booked and she's kind of, you know, she's got a she's got a roster. Um, there are other ones, other individuals there that are really good as well. So, so if you're interested, check them out. They're dope. Um, 
And so I say all this because I was also at the Philly book crawl this week. Um, I don't know if I told you all this, but I was one of the people involved in helping to produce the event. I was the social media manager. So if you went to the Philly book crawl Instagram, that's me making a lot of those posts. That's me doing a hashtag. That's me doing all the graphics and um, usage of promoting the graphics and information. That was me doing that. My good friend, Eric Smith, was the organizer. He was the lead organizer. And so he did a really good job of just bringing, you know, helping galvanize these bookstores. But for those who don't know, this is like the first of its kind. I mean, there have been people who've done other types of book festivals in Philly. But the way that we did it, the how we did it, the vibe, first of its kind. Basically, we looked at Fishtown and how Fishtown out of bookstores. And from there, we created this cool crawl of all these popular bookstores around Fishtown. And then we expanded to other participating bookstores across the city. And basically the goal was to incentivize people for that Saturday, this past Saturday, go out, check out these bookstores. We had book talks, book signings from different authors that are local, local bookstores only. So we didn't participate with Barnes and Nobles. Love Barnes and Noble, but that wasn't what this was about. This was about supporting local bookstores and local authors and whatnot. So it was a great opportunity. It was lots of premieres and events and things and spectacles and all that jazz. So it was a it was an overall good vibe. Um, I was trying to make it to as many bookstores as I could. So the major bookstores I went to, I went to Harriet's, and that's where I had my book signing. And people showed up. You all showed up and showed out. It was Parisian themed because I don't know if people know this, but Janine Cook, who's the owner of Harriet's in Philly, Ida's in New Jersey, she now has a bookstore in Paris called Josephine's. So notice that she's naming her bookstore after all these like prominent black women um, in history and how cool it is that she does that. You know, Harriet's was the first, but then Ida's after Ida B. Wells, Harriet as in Harriet Tubman, and Josephine as in Josephine Baker. She's doing all these really cool bookstores named after um, incredible black women in history. And she's the owner of this, and she's doing her thing. I mean, it's this is taking off. So she's got a bookstore in Paris. You know, hey, who knows? Maybe one day I'll be over there signing books. We'll 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 see. Because you know, I hear mixed stories about Paris, but her bookstore is dope in Paris. It looks very really good. So, outside of that, I've been really enjoying, um, you know, just promoting the book locally. So yesterday. Harriet's had to restock. Well, let me clarify. On Saturday, Harriet's had to restock copies of my book because so many people kept coming and getting them. And I was trying my hardest to be there long enough to sign. I was in and out. So some people caught me and got a book signed. Some people didn't. And I was like, well, you know, catch me if you can. Um, But I tried to pre-sign books. So there's some books that are already pre-autographed by me that was hand-autographed, of course, no stamps or anything like that. So some people locked away and got copies, but I think they wanted to be a little bit more personalized, but you know, hey, it happens. But I'm around, you know, I'll be around some more, you know, know, we'll see what happens. Um, Went to Bobby's book, uh, Bobby's, Bobby, Uncle Bobby's books, um, you know, Mark Lamont Hill's bookstore in Germantown, and they had some books, and I went over there and showed up, and listen, the book sold out. The store sold out of all their books. Harriet, stay stocked on my books. Shout out to Harriet's because y'all know the people have spoken, as, as Janine said. Um, so they stay, Harriet, stay stocked up with my books because they understand that, you know, this is a movement. 
But Uncle Bobby's are now are going to have to restock on my books again, um, which is good. I mean, they, they, you know, they, you know, we, you know, we support Uncle Bobby's and everything. They're going to have to buy more books um, because, you know, Germantown wants to keep reading about council culture. And so it was crazy. I went there um, and, you know, we sold the place out. And this is like I went I was I was there a couple of months ago when they, you know, when we first did it, we first did signings and it was the same effect. So people, you know, I, when I go to local bookstores, when I go to my black owned bookstores, you know, the people that's there, that's, that's readers, they know about the book. And, and, and sometimes I think people hold off because they want me to sign it. So that was just touching to see a book just sell out of a store like that, um, like my book. So that was touching. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, but yeah. So food, because before I get into some, this week, first of all, this week was wild. It's not that, you know, what's crazy is like every week when I'm, well, let me clarify, like the weeks that I have conventions and I have like big events or I'm like, you know, doing other things, I'm not on social media as aggressively. And people have noticed that, like, I'm not like, I'm, you know, Twitter is weird. Like I, I haven't been on Twitter as much because I'm, I'm too busy making the news to be, you know, you know, to be retweeting the news. So it's like the weeks that I have like other stuff going on, that's when I'm getting these big, huge messages like, you know, hey, did you see this? So this is a very newsy week. A lot has been down. I'm going to unpack as much as possible. Some things I'm just not going to touch because one, it's just like another example, right? That shooting that just happened, that killed three black people by a racist that killed himself in the process. Like, I don't know what else more I can say. Right. Other than like until you address gun control, until you this country addresses racism and, and white supremacy and dismantle it, it's going to continue, unfortunately. And so, you know, my thoughts and my prayers and my condolences goes out to that family for real, for real. But it's it's you know, I'm going to forever be doing what I'm doing in the community um, to, to tackle racism with what I have. But more people need to step up, of course, and, and, and do what needs to be done. Otherwise, we're going to lose a lot of more innocent people to this type of violence. So, I, I you know, I, I don't want to, I, I, there's situations like that where I just, for my own peace of mind, and also for everybody, it's like, what more needs to be said other than taking the power to the people that be? So, yeah, but there's been a lot of stuff, and there's been a lot of deaths. Um, Bob Barker, who was at The Price is Right, passed away. I try not to do a huge, you know, um, obituary of sorts on my podcast around death because it's just like it's always never ending and I and it's like you know you know what can you say you know now there'll be some situations where if it's a little bit closer to heart you know then yes but that's something if people on my some people listen to my podcast will say well you forgot to talk about this you forgot to talk about that it's not that I forgot about it it's just that I chose not to do it um just for the flow of the sake of the podcast and just also the, the mood and the more of it all, right? So that's just some clarity there. Um, but yes, food. Um, so I went to dinner with my good friend, Michael Twitty, and you all were like, oh, so casual that you just name dropped Michael Twitty for dinner. It's because I, you know, and, and you know, it, it, they're like, what a flex. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it, y'all. Um, so for those who don't know who Michael Twitty is, he is an incredible, incredible cook. He's a black queer Jewish food expert. Um, he wrote a James Beard award-winning book called The Cooking Gene that was came out a couple years ago. And I read it and 
I was like, it just, it, you know, in my earlier years of interest in food, um, that book was just, it's an iconic book for those who don't know. It's like a major iconic book. If you are a black chef, a black restaurant owner, person in food, culture, period, this book is one of Samuel books that you must read. He traces the origins of his upbringing and how food and the, and the food ways of his roots to the way that he eats his food, the way he grew up through the South and everything. I mean, it's a phenomenal book. It's it's a bestseller. It's been around. It's, an, it's a great book. I highly encourage you to read it if you have not. If you want to know about your origins, your food. Before there was there was the 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 um the hog and the ham or whatever it was called, that documentary series on Netflix. Um let me, you know, I don't want to misquote it. Um High on the Hog. If you if you haven't if you've seen High on the Hog. There would be no high on a hog without the cooking gene because the cooking gene was a breakthrough book in that kind of cultural talk. And you wouldn't have it. And he's also what's interesting is that um, Michael Twitty is also on the high on a hog made a made a. Uh, that 2021 documentary, he made a cameo on that. So you might have remembered him. He was the the plus size guy who was, you know, wearing you know, very traditional wear and talking about food and culture in the South. That's him. Right. But before he before that documentary was conceived, you know, there was the cooking gene. And I um, would inquire. I would encourage people to read that incredible book. It's just uh, any anyway. So. We've been friends for a while. We've always kept in contact with each other, you know, social media and Twitter. You know, they travel. If they ever come to town, they come to town. So they had a big Philly trip um, that they made. And also he wrote books, just a shameless plug. So this book came out in 2017. So it's been out for a while. It came out August of 2017. So it's actually a memoir. And it's his culinary history in the Old South. Um, and he talks about a lot in that book. So it's... Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say that he has a book called Kosher Soul, which won a uh, Jewish literary book prize, which was a big deal because he was a black Jewish author that won that. And that doesn't happen over there um, often. So that was a big deal. But he's he's incredible. So we went to dinner at Booker's um, because we we had dinner on Monday and there's nothing really open on Mondays. And so Booker's is one of those places. But the cool thing about that experience was I was able to have my fried chicken and they had my hot sauce. Louisiana hot sauce was at Booker's. If you go to Booker's, they bought multiple bottles. So the good news is that there's multiple bottles. My name is on it. So that's the tease. But you can go there at Booker's if you want fried fish, whatever you want, shrimp or whatever, and say, hey, you know, do you have some Louisiana hot sauce? Because when I got my bottle, I realized that it was being used. I said, oh, people really like this hot sauce. Because mm. I thought it was going to you know, be, mm. I said, oh, people are already getting into it. But it's rare. I need to start making visits to these restaurants and tell these restaurants. First of all, hot sauce bottles, big ones, like, you know, they're in, they're inexpensive relatively. And the way that people use hot sauce, you don't, like, have to dump the whole thing on. It's not like ketchup or barbecue sauce or whatever. It's like you're going to have to consistently go through ounces. It's not like that. But the thing about it is, is that it's, it you know, you buy a couple, right? But 
People just want to be able to try, you know, people, folks that really do eat real good Southern food, they know what I'm talking about. People are like, why not crystals? Look, I'm not doing this with y'all. Hot peas, crystals, all that. Look, you, Louisiana is a standard. If you like crystals, you can appreciate Louisiana. If you like, you know, whatever. Now, we're not even going to talk about what's that Frank's hot sauce. That's so New York, Buffalo. That's, that's not hot sauce. That's not how I see it, at least. We're talking crystals. We're talking about hot peats. We're talking, you know, um, of course, Louisiana. We're talking about these three. Like, I don't know any other major brands um, that who has hot sauce that's worthy of acknowledgement, at least in this conversation. Because the rest that's out is just the, either it's Tabasco. And I'm like, Tabasco is not a hot, like, that's not. I don't know what the hell that is, but people like it. It's a pepper. It's a hot pepper sauce. It's not hot sauce. You know, that's a different thing. Um, and then people like to talk about Frank's, but it's like a very buffalo-y hot sauce that's not good unless you're, like, making the, their wings. Even that's kind of weird. I don't like the consistency of it. But anyway, we had a great time with the Louisiana hot sauce. And um, we just caught up, caught, caught, got caught up in general. Um, so that was fun, and um, we had some talks. More, more to come. Um, outside of that, I went to Bolo, which I talked about Bolo a while back. Is that Latin cuisine new restaurant that is right there on Sansom Street in Rent House, around twentieth in Sansom. Now, right next to it is a restaurant called Wilder. Um, yeah, I'm never I, listen. Mm, do I want to do that? Mm. Look, Wilder to each their own. I'll leave it at that. I don't. Get I've never gotten the hype of Wilder outside the fact that it's a pretty place. I think what people understand is that I'm grown. I don't go to restaurants that look good that the food's not good. Like, people be so copping that I just want to be somewhere pretty. If you want to waste your money and eat somewhere, eat food that's not good at a pretty place, be my guest. I'm there to eat. I, I mean, I want a place that can do both or, or or at least do the food part good. I don't, I'm not never going, I'm never going to go to a place that's just pretty but don't have good food or the food is inconsistent. I, nah, I'm good on that. Um, so I went to Bolo. Bolo was fabulous. Um, I went with one of my, um, one of the top editors at Eater who I work with and, and you know, and she's incredible. Um, we had dinner at Bolo. We, we did, we did the tasting menu, which I highly recommend. Like there was so many good things on the menu and I couldn't decide. And I tell people all the time, you can, when you're indecisive at a restaurant, go for the tasting menu if you can. Um, cause that just worked in my favor. Um, and I got to try empanadas. I got to try, you know, uh, skewers and grilled skewers and we had flan for dessert. It was fabulous. That was a great time. And of course I got a cocktail at Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I did not go to dinner cause clearly you have that reservation as y'all know, but I stopped by and saw my good people over there, Chad and Hannah, who are my faves. And I had a cocktail. I had the Assassin's Handbook, which is one of my all time favorite cocktails in Philly. And that cocktail was spicy and hot and strong and stiff and fruity and did everything. They use a Haitian rum that is to die for. It's incredible. If you have not tried Friday, Saturday, Sundays, you need to make a reservation. But if you go and make a reservation, you get a cocktail. You get the cocktail. The cocktail is the Assassin's Handbook, which is my one of my favorite all-time cocktails at a restaurant. It's incredible. Um, yeah, so I did. we did that. But... My oh, and we and I did brunch um at restaurant Alexander, which never misses for me. I had this steak and eggs, y'all. I'm officially medium rare on steak 
across the board. You know, it took me a little bit to move to that needle, but now I'm there. I'm at medium rare. We're not doing rare. It's not happening. Ugh. But medium rare is now what I get for steaks more often than not. Now, I was a medium girl for a while. Like being a medium is not bad. There's no judgment there. Now, when you start doing medium well and well done, baby, you don't want to eat a steak. But I'm at medium. I was at medium for a while. But now I feel like I got to up the ante. So now I've been doing medium rare. And when I go out down, I order medium rare at the table. My friends all look at me. I'm like, that's right. That's right. I'm that girl now. She's brand new. Rip me out the plastic. I've been acting real rare. <laughs> Put a ribbon on me because I've been acting rare. No, I, I'm, I'm on the medium rare tip now. Uh, that's where I'm at. I'm proud of myself. It's a, it's, it's, it's the taste because you just got to get to the taste, you know. Um, but I've come a long way. I was actually talking to my friends, um, you know, my friends and my neighbors, right? Um, but like uh, Mr. Johnson and I, and of course Amanda and Joe, we were at, we, we had dinner, um, and I'll tell you what we went in a minute. But we we they came over the crib and we was you know we're like literally like on the same floor out of spot, so it's like. Everything. I like that. I like the fact that it's like we can Uber out to dinner. We can Uber back to our place. We can stay at each other's cribs. We can drink and we can stay as long as we want and not feel like, oh my goodness, like someone's going to have to take an Uber ride home or someone's going to go somewhere. We're like, we can leave together and come home together. It's like the best thing ever. Like, it's wonderful. Um, but we were in great conversation on Saturday night. And in conversation, we were talking about steaks. My husband, I think, is at the medium place, but he sometimes dips his toes in medium well, and that's when the problems arise. Um, but to his credit, he doesn't eat much red meat, that much red meat. But he he does, but he doesn't eat as much. But sometimes I'm like, you know, if we're doing a situation where we're sharing a steak, like, you know, so that's the thing, right? When you're in a relationship, you're like on a date or a couple, whatever, like that whole steak for two, we just can't do steak for two. We can't do steak for two because that's, well, we, well, well, it's getting to a point where we may not be able to, like, so you know how they have these, like, you go to a restaurant, there's like big ass, like tomahawk steaks that are made for two. What happens when your boo wants to go down south and eat medium well on a steak, but you want to go up north and get close to medium rare? Now, the middle ground is medium, right? And I can do that. But what happens if they're not really feeling it like that? You can't do it. it sucks. But no, but we've been doing lately. We've been doing medium together if we do share steaks. We can find that common ground. But, you know, sometimes I feel like if he had it his way, he'll go medium well. But his folks and his family, look, he's from Trenton, New Jersey, and there's no stereotypes about Trenton, but some of his folks like to eat their steaks well done. Not naming no names, but you should just get a burger. But he is, I think, getting more medium than medium well. I am past the medium point. I am at medium well. I mean, I'm sorry, medium rare. So we're fighting these compromises together. Let's just say that. But we were just talking about this, about this evolution of, of, of taste palette and things. And it has been working. It has been effective. Mm. But I saw that to say that I went to Restaurant Alexander for brunch. I had the steak and eggs. With, they had these great seasoned potatoes on the side. There was a, a salmon rosti that was incredible. I think there was some caviar or something on it too, but that was incredible as well. But that was, oof. it was just a very great brunch. 
very reasonable price. It was perfect. Like, it's like, this is perfect, right? So, shout out to Restaurant Alexander. Shout out to Chef Montana Houston and Jameer Wimbley Cole. Dope ass people, dope chefs. They're black. They're both running Restaurant Alexander, doing their thing, keeping that place popping. And they've been on all the Restaurant Week, um, you know, uh, promotional stuff. And honestly, I'm not crazy about Restaurant Week, but I can appreciate Restaurant Week when it does work with great new restaurants that provide the opportunities and things. So, you know, there's that. Um, So, this restaurant that we went to this week, it, it deserves its own moment. The Lucky Well Incubator in Spring Garden is a must-go-to restaurant. We had, in our four group, a mixed group of tasters, right? I got a big guy from Baltimore in the crew. I got a very petite, picky girl from the DMV. I got a guy who's like stiff and, and very particular from Trenton. And you got this lovely Southern Belle. You can take three guys and one girl from different parts of the country together at a restaurant where oftentimes it's met with, can I have this? Can I have that? Indecisive of cuisine. And we sit there at this table and there's cocktails made for all of us. There's top, top stiff drinks for the, the boats, his head tops of the Joes of the world. There's also those heavier, you know, liquors for the, you know, the Mr. Johnsons of the world. And there's cute Palomas without L for myself and Amanda, right? Um, <laughs> bottoms up. But like there was great drinks. For, there was drinks that met, met our interests. And the drinks were strong and stiff. And the more playful and colorful they got, even they got stronger. Their espresso martinis, which I didn't drink, but they had, they said was good. It was a vibe. But what makes the Lucky Well Incubator an incredible place to eat is that they have four different chefs with four different expertise in culinary. And you, as the as the restaurant attendee, could go there and have a hobnob of all of it. So they have the Lucky Well, they have the barbecue. Their signature barbecue, great-ass burger they had. Oh, my God, that burger was so good. And what they do, let me tell you about that burger real quick. What I loved about their burger is that they don't do smash patties, okay? They're not smashing shit, okay? And I'm over smash patties, to be honest. I mean, when I go to Five Guys, I guess I eat that. But for people that don't know what a smash patty is and all that, I think I talked about this. A smash patty is when you get the ground, you get the meat, right? And you you smash it so flat that it comes to a crisp. And so it's automatically well done. You cannot get a medium smash burger. It's it's well done and smashed and flattened to the point where you can add layers of it. Now, this is fast cooking. And this is what a lot of uh, fast food burgers are like. So Five Guys, um, Five Guys, uh, what's the other place I like? In-N-Out, Ill, um, Snack Shake, Shake Shack or whatever. All of your major, you know, McDonald's, for those who observe, um, all of your favorite burger places are making smash patties. And a lot of people think that burgers, that that's how burgers should be made. Um, I mean, I understand that when you're on a quick, I need to eat something real quick. It makes sense to have smash patties. I get that. But when you are a real cook and you're grilling on a barbecue, right, 
you know, you want to have a real burger that's going to be cooked with a real level of flavor and juiciness. And you don't get a juicy burger if it's everything is a smash patty. That's just my take. Like real burgers, like how I grew up in the South, when they made it, you get the ground beef, you season, you do your thing, but you allow it to be on different temperatures. If I go to a restaurant and they don't ask me, how do I want my burger? Because there's people that do that. They say, what kind of burger you want? You want a burger rare? You want medium rare, whatever? Now, to be honest, y'all, I don't get my burger medium because that's a thicker ground beef. So normally I get my burger well done. But the reality is that the, the way they season that meat internally, it's a ground beef patty. Like with steak, you have to marinate a certain way to get cooked, to flavor it. But with burgers, because you're working with initially ground beef in your hand, the seasonings and the marination is already in that patty. So it's going to have a different impact. But anyway, they, they don't do smash patties. They say we don't smash anything. The only thing that's getting smashed is when it gets in your mouth, right? I appreciate that. That burger was fire. Um, but there were so many other things that were fire. These four chefs, so these four different chefs have four different concepts. One concept is Vietnamese food. They had a shrimp situation with rice and the the, the, the sauce. Y'all, killer. They had a Mexican concept, and we had this really, really great taco that felt like it was a Taco Bell Supreme, but made with authentic, organic, real ingredients. So you know how you could go to your favorite places. Now, I don't do this as much, but when I was younger, my mom used to do this thing where she would take us out to some of our favorite fast food restaurants, but she would my, but she would make the food at home and she would give us what we want, but she would make, she would get the recipes, but she would make it herself with better ingredients, with better things, and it would taste way better than anything that was at that fast food joint. And so I grew up doing that. I like a lot of people do that, like where you go to fast food places, you're like, oh, I love this, but what would it look like if I made this at home? Like, what would it look like if I made a quarter pounder at home with cheese, but I made it the the way at home with the better ingredients, the better quality stuff? That's kind of what this is. That's what it felt like with that uh, taco in question. It felt like a Trilupa Supreme, but with better seasoned meat, with better flour, with authentic ingredients and fresh made stuff. I mean, it was just stellar. Then they had um, the, the barbecue which we 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 killed. We the brisket, y'all. We had the brisket, the cornbread, the collard greens, and the mac and cheese, y'all. They were good. It was good. You know, there's a lot of barbecue places that they're good with their meats, but their sides or their what we call the fixins are never that good, y'all. Everything was good, and that's hard to say. Like I'm not, I you know, I'm not gassing things up, but like I was just so like in awe of how good everything was it's hard to put a restaurant together with multiple concepts right now he has chefs in residency so these chefs will be there for six months but all of them shine all of the chefs shine all of their dishes shined they had pasta oh i forgot the pasta they were stuffing us i was getting we were trying everything off the menu impromptu we wanted to taste of everything we were getting stuffed y'all but the pasta was the bomb they had oysters and seafood that had chorizo in it. And the chorizo with the oysters was fire. Okay. Um, everything on that menu was good. Everything on that menu was good. They have a smaller cocktail listing. They have a couple of like major cocktails. Like about four or five cocktails to drink. But to be honest with you. This is the type of place where if you don't want to try like any signature cocktails. You can get your favorite Cosmo. Your whatever. Your beer. Whatever. 
The food is the focus. The food is the spotlight. And the food is incredible. And what I also liked about the place too, y'all, if you want to come with a large party, they have table seatings that are accommodating for large parties. I say this because a lot of these restaurants nowadays, y'all, everything's like a little two-seater, a little four-seater. But if you got a crew of about eight people, you they got tables big enough to accommodate eight people, ten people situations. While we were there, someone was having a birthday party with cake and things like that. It was a vibe. I highly recommend people um, you know, take advantage of that. But it's in Spring Garden, it's real chill, real pretty, very very like relaxed. Like the vibe was relaxed. Come in some cute jeans, a little sweatshirt. You you don't really gotta do the fireworks there in order to have a good time. And I appreciate that. And I was surprised by how good the food was. Like I was just surprised by how damn good the food was. Like it's just oh Chef's kiss. Chef's kiss. Um yeah. <laughs> just I, I, you know, there's not that many places. I mean, there, you know, I, I love food and I love restaurants, but the reason why, the reason why I'm, I'm really shouting this out, and shout out to Chad, uh, who owns the Lucky Well Incubator. The reason why I really shout that restaurant out is because y'all, it is hard as a restaurant owner. I imagine this pandemic, but it's hard to create a, a residency program where you're simultaneously offering these servings to people. And convincing people that it's worth trying all of these different chefs. And what Chad Rosenthal is doing over there at the Lucky Well um, in Spring Garden is really giving these people opportunity to shine while also at the same time creating a space for the pickiest eaters. Or also the greediest eaters. Because like, what is it like to go to a restaurant and be like, you know what? I really am feeling a, a combination of things. I want a taco, but I also want some brisket. Like, uh, it felt like a buffet. It was incredible. Highly recommended. Definitely think people should take advantage. Um, you know, you know, I, you know, that's the thing. Um, so, love it a lot. Um, five stars. So. I want to talk about this briefly before I get into the hot topics um, of, the, of the show. You know, I wrote a Facebook post, an Instagram post that, you know, took some traction online about a conversation about neutrality. And I want to talk to you all about it. Um, you know, this summer has been a great summer, a summer of growth, a summer of learning, a summer of just, you know, just really evolving as a person. Um, and one of the things that I've realized on my journey has been that there's no such thing as neutral as people. And because I'm somebody that I guess people find polarizing and very, you know, one way or whatever, you know, I used to always kind of, you know, shy away from that label and shy away from that. But then I was like, that's why a lot of people fuck with me. Because with me, if you got a friend in me, you got somebody that's loyal. And, I'm, and I don't want to segue into my next topic, but I just want to say Marjorie Taylor Greene, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is a horrible person. But one thing you can't say about Marjorie Taylor Greene is that she's not a disloyal person. She is riding for Trump till the wheels fall off, okay? She like, if you got a mugshot, Trump, I got a mugshot. 
You got to have people like that because that's the kind of friend that I am. <laughs> you got to have the type of friend that's going to be like, listen, if you out this bitch, I'm out this bitch. I'm not fucking with it, right? You got to have friends like that. I have friends like that. When I got, you know, banned from NABJ, my friends in this industry said, fuck NABJ. I'm not about to sit up here and be a member of this organization while they're out here kicking my friend out without due process and unjustifiably and fucked up, right? They said, you know what? We are rescinding our memberships and they demanded refunds and they got them. They, they sent their NABJ convention. They, they asked for refunds. That's what real friends do. I, that's just what it is, right? I'm that kind of friend, that kind of loyalty. And so we're in a place in this country and in society in this time right now where in this world, you got to pick a side. I'm not talking about one issue or another issue. I'm talking in general. Neutrality is just not what it is. People that walk around, and these are the buzzwords, y'all, because y'all know what I'm talking about. People that walk around doing the, you know, I try to stay neutral, <laughs> red flag. People that say, well, you know, I like to be Switzerland in the situation. Eh, eh, eh. People that say, you know, I like to, you know, you know, I I, I I, see what you're doing from a distance. I admire far, but I try to, you know, I try to, you know, you know, see both sides. Eh, eh, eh. Let me tell y'all something about neutral ass people. Neutral ass people are fake ass people. Because in this world, there's no way on, on any type of sense when it comes to situations that are directly impacting you or anybody in your circle in any friendship or relationship that if you choose to be neutral you choose the side of the oppressor most people who say they're neutral are ops most people that choose to be neutral are selfish when they say that they are neutral what they're saying to you in your face is they don't want to be put in a position to pick a side because it might go against their own personal self-interest and that, my friends, is selfish. And if that's who you are, then you're a coward. And there's no way I can define it. Now, Desmond Tutu and Ellie Wiesel, who wrote the incredible book Night, many leaders have spoken about the dangers of neutrality. We ain't talking net neutrality. We're talking about human neutrality. That shit is toxic as fuck. You cannot be neutral in oppression. You cannot be neutral in times of conflict. We, the people, pick positions and sides. And people who say they're neutral are lying. They're oftentimes talking triangular. They're doing triangular shit behind the back, behind the scenes, robbing Peter to pay Paul. They're playing games to figure out how they can get the best of both sides of situations. They're draining one side, they're draining the other side. They're pimping the process. And when you meet people who are neutral, Stay away from them because those people are not loyal. They You can't get their loyalty. When you ask for loyalty from a person and they tell you they're neutral, they're telling you that they cannot be your ally, that they cannot be your accomplice. And therefore, if that is the case, then there's no way you can actually move forward. Neutral people don't exist in my world. Not in my world. I can't fuck with neutral people. If you cool with me, you cool with me. If you choose to be cool with them, then you need to be cool with them. The real reality is, is that people who are in these, these moments of leadership, right? People that are in these moments of contention, whatever it is, right? 
You have to decide for yourself that if you meet a person that's neutral, you got to let them know what your boundaries are. And you got to let them know that they have to pick a side. And if they don't pick a side, you're going to pick a side for them. I've had some interesting conversations this year when I look back at certain people I left behind. There are people that I'm not friends with anymore. And you all know, you all can tell some of them people who they are because you're not seeing them in pictures anymore or you're not seeing them with me anymore. Um, that's by design because they were in a position of neutrality. And I'm like, if you're in a position of neutrality, when I'm at a time of conflict and I need soldiers and I need people to stand beside me, if you can't be that person, then why are you here? <laughs> ho, why is you here, ho? Like, why are you here? And you can't be sitting up here just chilling with me, eating my food, drinking my drinks, being at my parties, but you over here indifferent. What the fuck are you indifferent about? If you're that person, get the fuck out. And that is important. Because we're seeing too much of that shit. A lot of y'all are thinking right now as you listen to this podcast, are there people in your life? in your social circle, your professional circle, your professional network, that's neutral. If they are that way, you got to let them stray. You either tell them where to stand or you stand the fuck out. Because if you have neutral people in your circle, it gets toxic. So let me tell you an antidote of what I'm talking about. And this is the first time I've ever discussed this. I'm only sharing this with y'all on this podcast. I'm not ready to, I mean, I'm no, I know that saying this on the podcast, is going to go viral in the sense that people are going to talk about it outside the podcast. That's fine. It is what it is. This is a very open, on-the-record type of podcast. I get it. But I have not felt, like, it just, it, the, 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 the betrayal, the, the level of, I can't even type this. I can only speak on it, is where I'm at right now. So this is a earnestly speaking exclusive that you're going to hear right here. Here it goes. So y'all remember when I told you all back in January when the NABJ and PABJ split, right? I told you all about how I had assigned an ad hoc committee in my presidency, this group of some of these older, more senior members who were, you know, pretty much wanting to build and keep the organization together and work with NABJ to figure a solution, right? I created an ad hoc committee. I told them, you know, go talk to NABJ so we can, you know, try to build. Now, this is before I was kicked out of NABJ. Because once NABJ kicked me out, it was kind of like, bye, girl. But before this, we tried every type of strategy, every type of strategy that we could to bring the group back to some level of peace. We was trying. And as you all know, it failed. Because NABJ wouldn't budge on what they wanted to do. And we just was like, okay, well, if we can't come to a page, we'll stay where we're at. Now, after I got banned, you know, you would think that certain people would be like, you know what? I'm going to pass on. I'm going to pause on that. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I can't really rock with NABJ at this point because this is problematic, right? Nope, they didn't. So this group, they framed themselves at the time, as being neutral. They said they wanted to be peacekeepers to help bridge the gap. They wanted to mediate the tension, basically be the middleman, and helping to move the organization forward, and they had the best interests of our organization and both organizations. That's what they claimed. They were neutral. They weren't trying to pick sides. They were trying to see both sides, and they wanted to move forward. That's what they said. Well, over the summer, 
and this week I found out something different. One of those individuals came to me with some guilt. They had basically was participating in what I feel like it was a coup, a betrayal. They felt guilty because they was at my party. They was at the party where we was drinking and eating. And they were sitting there on some Judas type tip, but except Judas, you know, you know, hangs himself. This person who was a Judas just confessed everything and felt guilt and cooperated in basically, basically they ratted. <laughs> they told me that pretty much this group of people was privately trying to create another black journalist association in Philly. Apparently it was going to be called NABJ Philly. There was a communication with the new NABJ president, Ken Lemon, and that they were having these conversations and that the NABJ board was going to come to Philadelphia in October and have a meeting in October. And they were going to hatch this way to create an alternative, uh, what basically chapter, quote unquote, that would basically rival or attempt to rival that of what the current Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists is. Yes, y'all. Yes. Now, some of y'all might be like, I'm not surprised. Listen, I was furious. So these people who were saying they were neutral the entire time was behind my back and the board's back for the entire summer, basically having these talks going to the convention. One of them rented out an outside house and had people stay there. And they were out here plotting and scheming. And this person who was in the middle of all of that shit came to me through guilt and confessed. So let me tell you what I did. Let me tell you what my, org- my, my leadership did. For you to be participating, this group, um, and I want to add this. This person who cooperated with the organization's authorities in reporting this issue to the board, we gave them immunity from what we decided to do with the other group. This is treason. These are traitors. These are people who did this not in good faith. They didn't share any communication with us on the planning of this. They did not share anything. I notified them that until they had a conversation with me and the leadership about why they were doing or attempting, let me clarify, attempting to do this, they were temporarily suspended as members of this organization. You're not going to be a member of the organization while trying to form a rival organization with an institution that is operating in bad faith. That is a hands down, non-negotiable. You you ain't going to be able to sit with us and do anything with us because of this situation. So we suspended those memberships temporarily. And, you know, we haven't really heard so far. Let me add it so far. Because it happened over the weekend. We haven't heard much from them about pushback. Some of them started, you know, we saw them at the convention, the ONA convention. And they started playing aloof. Like, I don't know what's going on. I don't Maybe we have the receipts. We got email correspondence. We got information about Zoom calls and schedules of Zoom calls where they were having full out hours long meetings, plotting and scheming. Listen, it takes one person, y'all. All it takes is one person. All it takes is one person to spill the beans. But it's something about me, I feel like, that makes people uncomfortable with the truth. 
I don't know if it's 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 something about my presence that for whatever reason, people want to avoid being in contact with me. And I'm talking about bad people, not friends, y'all, but bad people. I feel like people with bad intentions, people who are not doing, that's not living their truth, that's not being real. They don't want to be around me because there's something about my presence that make people reflect on their actions. And so I kept wondering to myself, why were these people never in community in contact? Like they didn't go to the pool party. They didn't come to any these things. I was like, because they knew if they was in my presence. For a long enough time, I was going to get a sniff. And I feel like it's my my late grandmother's, like, she had a lot of intuition. And I think that that's in me. This ability that I can see, I can foreshadow things, I can prepare myself for things, I can predict things. And in many ways, I find myself being very protective while also being introspective at the same time. It's, 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 you, it's, it is what it is. But, like... I've started to notice that as I've gotten older, that my ability to detect bullshit and fuckery is at an all-time high. My detector level is at an all-time lie. My third eye is seeing everything. And it's, in some sense, insightful and, and it's like, yes. But it also is like, damn. Because you just know that you just can tell. And there's just certain people who got this correspondence that were the usual suspects. These were people that all of these people, none of these people surprised me. They were all in cahoots from day one. And I always kept a side eye on them. And this situation confirmed that for me. The good news is now that we know what it is, our membership, our leadership is standing 10 toes down. We are rebuking all of this ridiculousness where we're letting people know shame, 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 and we're not going to be quiet about it. And if you knew some of the people who was a part of this situation, oh my goodness, you would be shocked. These are journalists that you all know. These are people that you're like, wow, why would you do that? You would be disgusted if you knew who they were and they deserve all of the shame. But I'm not going to name them. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to let them be a victim because I know y'all go hard. Y'all be going hard. And I don't want nobody to to feel or use it as a scapegoat. I'm not going to reveal who they are. I'm going to let them reveal who they are. And I'm going to make them make a decision about where they stand in this moment. Because if they try to do something like that publicly, can you imagine? Can you imagine how foolish they would look. This is an organization that's been around for nearly 50 years. Why would you try to create something new when you could just sit your ass down and work with what is already in front of you? Who does that? What money? And on top of that, NABJ, of all people, you think they care about y'all? You think they really are doing this with y'all intentions in mind? Or are they just trying to be spiteful because they can't get over the fact that I'm no longer a member of their organization? And I was like, why are you so obsessed with me? Guess we know why. So stay tuned on that. You know, we seem to have our own little insurrectionist in Philly media. But it's the, the, the chickens have come to roost. And we're at that part where we're, we're it's, it's about damn time. I honestly lean. I don't know. The Libra in me, the type of person I am, I don't know. I lean into confrontation. These are the moments. This is a defining moment, right, in your life. 
These are those moments where you lean into confrontation. You say, you want to see me? Let's see each other. These are the moments where things get to a point where decisions get made and shit gets final. Closure is important in your life, y'all. And people run from closure. People run from conclusions. People run from a period at the end of the motherfucking sentence. But I believe that, that is, these are the important times where in your, yourself, your leadership, in your personage, that you get to that place where you're like, yes, I want to let it, put it on the flow, bitch. That's the energy that I'm on, you know, because you can flow around with a billion question marks. Don't you want some answers? Don't you want some proof? Don't you want some clarity? Get your fucking clarity. And I think this year, it's been the year of clarity for me. It's been the year of tell me the truth. Let me figure it out because I can't live in a silo. I can't live in an echo chamber. I can't live in the dark anymore. And so if you are somebody in your own life that's experiencing situations where you've been running, you've been you've been dodging accountability, dodging confrontation, lean into that shit to move forward with your life. You won't be able to really move over until you confront some of those things. It's not going to happen every day. But I'm telling you all that as someone who's navigated that this year, I have never felt so freed up. I've never have had as many shits not to fucking give. It's it's enlightening. It's empowering. It just, the, the, there's a weight because the grief, the, the guilt, the shame, whatever you feel, it's in the shoulders. The tension is in the shoulders. You know, there's a good book, and I'm not going to talk about too much. The body keeps score. I recommend it. Because the body does keep score. When you're dealing with hostile, traumatic things, right, that tension shows up in your physicality and things. People have been saying to me, you're glowing. Your skin is cleared up. You just, your skin, I love my skin game. Shout out to Kills. But people have told me lately, they see me, they have a glow, that my skin is just flawless. I do feel like since I've been on this journey, my physical well-being has been better. Like, I don't know. There is a different type of feeling I have that my body is just receiving. And it's 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 wild. But I, I I won't get into I won't get too physical here, but it's just. It feels different. And I think it's because of the fact that I'm in a mental space where I'm starting to let go of obligations that are not mine. And I want you, the listener, listen to this podcast. Somebody might be thinking I'm talking about them too because I'm this, this sermon is for a lot of y'all. But we're in a space in this world where too many of us are taking on too much weight that is not our weight. And I'm not talking about physical weight. I'm talking about the depth of responsibility and obligation. And at some point, you have to recognize this is above me. That this is not my burden. That this is not my responsibility. That I have my own values and my own priorities and my own journey. And at some extent, some of the things that is obligating me is not of me. And you have to let go. Or you have to recognize that it's somebody else that should be dealing with that issue with the powers that they have. That your power, your agency can be limited. And sometimes we want to do everybody's job and we forget that 
Sometimes you're going to get to a point where there's going to be a wall and a limitation and a barrier. And if you cannot cross that barrier without hurting yourself in the process, then the coercion of having that barrier is never going to allow you to have the liberation you think you're going to have. And when I started learning to let go and let in community, that's when collective action started to move better. That's when I was able to have support. That was when I was able to understand my limits and my boundaries and recognize that that doesn't make me weak. That makes me smart. And when I created that, when I started building coalition, when I, when I started having, you know, being intentional about the friends that I have, the, the, the family that I want to have, the relationships I want to have, the intentionality that I want to have, that was when things began to get clear. And I think when I look at people I talk to that reach out to me, and I really, I'm, I'm, I don't know why I'm emotional, but when I think about some of you all who come to me in my DMs and, and, and you know, fans, and you talk to me about your experiences and we talk about, you know, ask Ernest, and sometimes, you know, I don't ask every question, but when you share stuff and we, we chat and we talk about it, I've just noticed in, in many of the conversations I'm having is that there are people who are feeling like they have more responsibility than what they really should be having. And they're in positions where they fear that if they're not the one, then everything's going to fall apart. I don't believe that. I believe that we live in a capitalistic society that makes us feel like everyday people, right? Us as workers and, and folks of, that does not have billionaire power structures, right? We are often burdened with our humanity that we are making choices, right? We're obligated to be a humanitarian, but also something that needs to survive in a fucked up corrupt system, right? And we're oftentimes put in positions where we feel shame and guilt because our livelihoods are being supported by exploitation. But then the reality is, is that if you're in a situation that you're being coerced, coercion does not necessarily define it, right? That everybody in society is being coerced to do something. But at the end of the day, recognizing what you can do, what you have is more powerful than trying to be the boss or the bigger person in a space where you don't have all that power and authority to do so. These are complicated conversations and they don't have everyday answers, but I'm saying that on a larger scheme, when I look at all of the things, neutral people are the worst people and that we can never be a neutral person. <laughs> That we should pick a side, speak on it, stand by it, and move forward. That we cannot keep acting like there's a middle ground. It's black or white. It's not gray. Nuance exists, but does not exist as a side to pick. You can't just say, I choose to, to be on the nuance side. No, you recognize the nuances of both sides, but they're not a neutrality and nuance is not a side. You don't get to pick an option that divorces you from accountability. You can stand in your side while recognizing the nuances of the other, but you still have to pick a side. Life chooses that. And anybody who calls themselves anyone of faith, you should know that, in my opinion. So, that's that. Now to big topics. Okay, Trump's got mug shots, mug shots for days. All of those people that were involved in Fulton County in Georgia with election, you know, racketeering, RICO charges, all of that. Donald Trump got a mug shot. Apparently he's back on Twitter. Oh, God. Uh, or X now, because I don't even, what is that? 
right? He's back on X or AKA Twitter. Um, who else is back? Rudolph Giuliani had his mugshot released. Apparently, there were two black people involved. Trivian Kuti Kuti. She is Kanye West's former publicist, black woman. <coughs> she was also um, did a mugshot and was arrested and charged. And her mugshot is horrible. She's smiling in it. It's a mess. Harrison Floyd, who is also of color, he was the lone tr defendant in the election RICO case. He is still in custody. He was denied bond. Okay. Harrison Floyd, who is the lone defendant in the election RICO case, that is still in custody, y'all. He has not been bailed out. He was denied bond. They're keeping him in there. And he's being reminded, right, that he's black, that even in criminal justice cases where white people can still be caught up, you still look, you know what I'm saying? That That's just, the jokes write themselves, right? But I say all this to say that, you know, people are getting excited about, you know, these mug shots and chumps, you know, being arrested and things and the showcase of it all. I mean, it is iconic. I mean, we've never seen a former president go through all of this. Now, Ronald, now, now, Nixon had his problems, clearly. But Ronald Ricks, no, sorry. Um, Ronald Nixon, they ain't got shit on Donald Trump. I'm sorry, Richard Nixon. <laughs> Goodness, Ronald. Because I'm thinking of Donald Trump. Okay, Ronald, Donald, no. Richard Nixon ain't got shit on Donald Trump. He just don't like, you know, the, you know, it's again, another Republican, another scandal, but you know, Nixon is Nixon and Nixon definitely had his problems. Okay. Watergate and all that. But this shit with Trump, this is a whole nother level and it's only going to get messier from here and it's already has. So let's get into it. The GOP debate. I watched it. I did watch it, y'all. People were like, did you watch it? I watched a later version. I did not watch it the night of because I was out on Wednesday night. But that debate was ridiculous. I mean, first of all, there was like eight candidates. Doug Bergman, Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson, Mike Pence, Vivek Ramsamy, Tim Scott. So it was eight of them. To be honest, I mean, I'll play the game of debates because y'all like who won, who you thought won, yada, yada, yada. I'll entertain it. I'm not voting for none of these people. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. The person who I thought won was Nikki Haley. Um, I thought that she was the most serious candidate running. Um, you know how there are people like, you know, who's the most serious, who's unserious. I felt like Nikki Haley was the most serious candidate in the sense that for the most part, except one part, right? My issue with her is how do you plan to support policy that strip you away from their rights, girl? But I'm, I digress. But, but, but Nikki seemed to be a little bit more critical of one, the Republican establishment, two, Donald Trump. She also seemed to be very vocal about the hypocrisy of Republicans in Congress that are pledging all of these things without recognizing the numbers. And so 
that was one. The conversation about abortion, you know, she was passive, but she was very clear and she bumped heads with Mike Pence about this because Mike Pence was mansplaining with a Christianity bent to it. And she was just being like, listen, you know, she does, she thinks that there needs to be a common ground on the issue for what it's worth, whatever that means. But she just, you know, she overall, I feel like, was the closest to what a Republican was in 2008 um, or 2012 even. I feel like that's who Nikki Haley reminded me of. Um, outside of her, um, Chris Christie was I. Um, you know, he wasn't horrible. He, he had moments, you know, that Jersey energy came out of Chris Christie. Um, definitely he was the strongest on talking about Trump and the Constitution. And so he definitely made his, his knowing stand there. So those were my two that I thought were fairly decent. It's a shit show after that. Mike Pence, honestly, was a snore fest. Um, I don't know why he's running for president. I, I, I don't know why. Because, of course, we all know Donald Trump was not there. Um, and this is before Donald Trump's mugshot was released. So he was in the debate. The debate aired on Fox News, of course. But I'm sitting there looking at Mike Pence like, you know, it's really hard for anybody to take you seriously right now when the base don't like you. Trump got people talking about hanging Mike Pence. I, I don't know why he's running. And he was very flat. Doug Bergman, Asa Hutchinson, Chow, who are they? What are they? I'm not here for it. Tim Scott didn't really have much time to talk. But he just seemed to just be happy to be in a room. And I've been hearing that there is a, a strong possibility that Tim Scott is going to consider. Now, this is the black, uh, you know, senator from South Carolina who apparently isn't married. Hmm. But he is, you know, apparently running. And I think, you know, he is running. But I think what I've been hearing from people is that he is like being the Kamala Harris of the debates. Like, Basically, he's running for vice president. He wants to be the VP nominee. And he's not beating the VP nominee rumors. I do think Tim Scott is not trying to be the next president. I think he's trying to be a vice presidential candidate. I think he's trying to be the VP pick. I remember many, many moons ago when Kamala was running for president, a lot of people kept saying, Kamala, y'all ain't trying to be for president. She just needs to get some name recognition and some vibes so that she can then be the VP. And I noticed that because she suspended her campaign before 2020. Like she was one of the first to suspend her campaign before a lot of people were polling you know, less than her did. I was like, how are you out the race before Cory Booker and Andrew Yang? Like, I didn't understand that, right? Like, there are people like Pete Buttigieg and other people that were still in the race that had no chance. Kamala was doing a lot better than them. And I knew she was not actually a real presidential candidate. So it was kind of like, what the fuck are you doing, right? But I get it. She played strategy. It worked. She became the VP. I think Tim Scott is trying to do the same thing. I think he wants to be the next Republican candidate's VP. I wonder, though, if she's going to do that under a Trump, if Trump still is at play. But I, I see VP from him. Ron DeSantis, you know, I don't know what Ron DeSantis is doing, child. I, I really don't know what Ron DeSantis brings to the table. I, I just feel like the more he's on debates, him trying to put on a smile, he's creepy, he's weird, he's awkward, 
He's annoying. He's arrogant. He's woefully ignorant. Everything about this man is just giving very like, but you know, people keep thinking he's the strongest bet against Trump, but he does. He isn't y'all just because a person is a popular governor doesn't mean they're going to be a popular president. Like listen, this guy, what he did in Florida, Florida got problems. He tries to make it seem like Florida is this special place, a good example of what it, what the country can bottle out this. No, we cannot, right? This man is so extreme on his policy that he is even scaring fellow Republicans. He is not going to get a really good groundswell of support. I know these Iowa caucuses and Ohio caucuses will confirm, I believe. I don't think Ron DeSantis is the guy. I don't believe that yet. And everybody's like, well, I don't want Trump to lose because DeSantis is going to get it. Let me tell y'all something. I need y'all to really pay close attention to this election. And if you don't, just as Ernest is speaking. But they want you to believe, right? Like, like I'm not going to say the media, not all media, but a lot of the talking points want you to believe that Ron DeSantis is going to be the alternative to Trump. I don't believe that, y'all. For some reason, I believe that there is going to be a new coalescing to get another alternative candidate while this Trump shit is going on. And I don't think Ron DeSantis has the pull, and I think they know that. He can't even keep the staff in his own damn office right now. It's But yet he's supposed to be hot. But let me tell you who caught my eye and who is interesting is that Vivek Ramsamy, who is of color, he's brown, not all our skin folk are our kin folk. I believe he's Indian. He is carrying the Trump banner. Heavy. He's giving charismatic. He's giving bold. He's giving all that. Now, listen, he's not my guy. I don't believe him at all. But he has a certain charisma that makes me wonder where where what's happening here. Something's happening here. And I can't put my finger on it. But watch out for this guy. I don't know. I just think his his emergence. He's 38 years old. He um, you know, is a business person. He is definitely a Trumper mega type of person. Um, he's the model American, model minority energy, very much, oh, you know, my parents, you know, came here as immigrants and they got their citizenship as Americans. And <clears throat> we want to, people need to learn about that and, you know, be, you know, Mar- you know, he's, he's very like American dream rhetoric heavy, very, you know, law and order, plays all the games. People think he has fresh ideas. I don't know what ideas he has that are fresh, but he just seems to be someone who's just getting a lot of airtime and energy. He's He was like a big standout at the debate. There are many people consistently pounding on him. And I'm like, when you have a person that has that much energy and charisma and a bunch of people are piling on them and they're standing up 10 toes down, that's someone you should watch out for. Hmm. Just saying. If I do say so myself. So that was that. Now, here's the thing. In Philly, right now, in local politics, we have our own problem with debates. David O. wants to have 10 debates. He's a Republican candidate running for Philadelphia mayor. There has not been a Republican mayor in Philadelphia in, I don't know, over 30 plus years. It's been, We haven't had a Republican mayor, I think, since 1965. Maybe it's been a long ass time, y'all. It, we haven't had one in a while. 
So I'm looking at this guy and I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at David O. I'm just like, David O clearly knows that without a, without a debate, he's going to lose. No visibility, no attention. He's toast. He wants to play the card though. But allegedly, according to, you know, you know, sources, Sherelle Parker is not interested in doing a debate with him. Sherelle Parker's team, allegedly, um, is very much so focused on the campaign trail of her reaching voters, having meetings, doing her thing, but has no interest in doing any debates in this particular cycle. Now, you know, this pales in comparison to what went down during the primary where Sherelle was at almost every damn debate. Um, but that was a Democratic primary where, to be honest, anybody was in that primary that was a Democrat was basically fighting for dear life uh, and wanting to get a chance to win. So that was a different type of race. In this situation, um, it's just not possible, right? It's just not feasible. It's just not <clears throat> a lot of things. So it's really hard to nail down um, who's going to do the debates. Now, David O claims that there's some media outlets has been saying they're interested in debates and they want to do it. Um, for where I stand, I get the sense that Sherelle is going to dodge it. Because to be honest, she doesn't benefit from the debates on a strategic level. She literally has the voters clinched already um, based on just common sense. She she doesn't have you know she doesn't have to do the debate. The debates don't benefit her. David O benefits from the debates because he's coming in as somebody who is fighting to stay in the race, fighting for dear life. So he, of course, wants to do them, and so he's getting people, he's engaging them, but they can't do the debate without Sherelle. Sherelle does not choose to participate. Then basically, it's just him, and they're not going to air him without her confirmation. So I don't know. I don't. One, I know she's not doing 10 debates, but I don't also think, and if she does do a debate, it might be one debate. But I think about last year with, not last year, but last election cycle with uh, Kenny in 2019, he had a candidate named Billy Sitiagi or whatever. They never had a debate. And guess what? Kenny had five, four out of five votes. Every Every five votes, he had four out of every five votes. Like he swept, okay? So he didn't need to do it. He didn't need to do nothing. He just went back to work. It's a wrap for David O. David O is just trying to grab straws, but I mean, I don't see it. I personally don't see it. That's fine. That's my take. So interesting enough, I don't know if y'all been following this, but Edward Bloom, who is the right wing activist, that's the guy who got Harvard to change his affirmative action policies at the Supreme Court. He is currently suing law firms over diversity fellowships, and he is claiming that he has more lawsuits planned against diversity programs. Y'all, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. It was not going to stop at college admissions. It was going to be anything with diversity. He is trying to use the same rhetoric at the Supreme Court as against anything that's offering diversity. He is such a piece of shit. I don't know if he's going to succeed, but I just wanted y'all to know to stay woke on it. I'll add that. Um, and other news that is not as political and serious news, apparently Holly Berry is going to have to pay her ex-husband 
Olivia Martinez. This is the white guy that she was dating a, a while back. She's got to pay this man $8,000 a month in child support after they finalize the divorce. Now, if you do the math, that is $96,000 a year that she has to pay in child support to a man, to her ex-husband. Holly Berry, baby. Oh, my goodness. I'm so happy you got Van Hunt in your life because that is disgusting, man. These, 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 I mean, first of all, I don't know if y'all know this. Fun fact about him, anybody who's a person, a, a cinephile or anybody into film, Olivia Martinez is a French actor. Now, for those who don't remember, he wasn't in that many movies. He was in that film, Dark Tie with Holly Berry. He was in the film, Saving Lives, back in 2004. He was in the SWAT movie. But the major film he was in that you all might remember him as, he was in the film, Unfaithful with Diane Lane, that came out in 2002. I remember that movie, and I did watch it when I was younger, and I was fascinated by it. Um, but he was in that film, and... Um, you know, he's 57 years old now. Him and Holly Berry divorced in 2016. They were only married for three years. Um, but yes, she's 57. Um, wow, Holly Berry's 57 and he's 57. They're the same age. Interesting. But there's a there's a lot going on. Um, but he was in that film. He was also in a movie Before Night Falls that came out in 2000 alongside Javier Bardem and Johnny Depp. So he's been in some interesting films. Um, he was the man who was sleeping around with Diane Lane in Unfaithful, which was a very great film. Um, but yeah, he doesn't really have much of a career since, to be honest. He hasn't really been in any films in like 20 years. Um, and, you know, but you know, I mean, he was in that one film, I guess, with Holly Bear, I suppose. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, you get who you date. But yeah, that's so unfortunate for her. Um, but I heard that I was just like, wow, interesting. Because everyone's always talking about men paying child support. But interesting enough, Hollywood celebrity women like Holly Berry has to as well. So moving along. Um, y'all, this Scooter Braun situation. I don't know if y'all been following this. I mean, some of y'all been talking about it. But, you know, Scooter Braun is his major talent manager. He's like... Uh, he's an entrepreneur. He's a music executive. He's the one that fucked over Taylor Swift a, a couple years back with her masters. And he's been a hot ass mess. But to be clear, Scooter Braun has built a reputation because he's managed Ariana Grande. Justin Bieber is his most famous client. Okay. This is the longest running agent for, for, for him. Like, but he's also has ran Dan and Shay, Kanye West at one point. Uh, Demi Lovato, Tori Kelly, Little Dicky, The Kid LaCroix, Carly Rae Jepsen, Ava Max, Quavo, Black Eyed Peas, Ozuna, um, Joe Balvin, I think I heard at one point. He's got a lot of people he represents. He's got some, Adina Menzel, like he's got some big names, okay? But there has been a, a, an exodus, okay? Of people leaving him. And he even made a joke talking about, you know, there was like a lot of articles basically saying that, you know, Scooter, you know, so-and-so was no longer represented by Scooter Brian. He made a joke on on Twitter where he basically became a meme. And he basically said, you know, that Scooter Brian is no longer managing himself. And it was like, what? You know, being poking fun. But there's something going on after it. So there was some news that said that. Scooter Braun and Bieber had allegedly haven't spoken in months and they were headed for a split. 
And then the reps for both of them told page six that apparently the rumors weren't true. Now, Scooter Braun and Bieber have been friends and been working together for over a decade. And they've been through a lot. You know, Braun opened up at one point about helping Bieber out of his dark place back in 2004, saying that he failed to be there for Bieber in the right ways at the time. And y'all remember like 10 years ago when Justin Bieber was doing some really erratic shit? This is before he was going to church and all that Hillsong stuff. But he was going through it, okay? Um, but, you know, Bieber has kept a very low profile for a while anyway. Like, he hasn't really done an album since 2001. You know, in 2002, you know, he was dealing with the facial paralysis, which is Ramsey Hunt syndrome. Um, and that was a lot. However, Ariana Grande and Demi Lovato, okay, left um, him, Scooter Braun. And that got really messy because there was an article in um, Entertainment Weekly that was saying that Ariana Grande and Braun was no longer working together. But then Variety denied that. They said that that was denied in Variety. And Ariana Grande has been with him, with, with Scooter Braun, since 2013. So they've been together for 10 years. So it's confusing what's going on. So then Billboard, now they said Demi Lovato and Scooter Braun had parted ways. But... Apparently, Variety says that the split was mutual and amicable, um, basically saying that she just wanted to go in a different direction. Um, and I don't know if people know this, but Demi Lovato is like recording, like re-recording some of her old songs, doing a punk rock style version of a new album she's got called Demi Lovato Revamped. Colombian artist, which I was about Jay Balvin, not Joe, but Jay Balvin. Um, he ended his partnership last year and went to Rock Nation. Um, Adina Menzel, you know, parted ways with Scooter Braun um, in January of this year. The kid Leroy had resigned in 2022 after leaving 2021. And apparently he referred to his time with Braun as a mistake, as a joke, apparently. Um, but there's no speculation, you know, it's like everyone's trying to figure out like what's going on here. Um, you know, like people are thinking, is there a story coming out? Why are people leaving? What's going on? But like, honestly, like I told you as a Swifty myself, honestly, you really cannot talk about Braun without talking about that Taylor Swift controversy because in 2019, he did acquire Taylor Swift's former record label, Big Machine and controlled Taylor Swift's Masters from 2006-2017. On this podcast, you know, we've been talking about her having to re-record her albums. But Taylor Swift, you know, at the time had told everybody about what Braun did to her. And what, the you know, Scott uh, Borchetta, who is the Big Machine Records founder. This is this is the group that signed her um, initially with her career. And she has consistently have, um, you know you know, talked about what they did to her. Now, the messiness is, though, is that, um, you know, Braun, you know, there was some back and forth between them in the public, but Scooter Braun sold her back, her catalog, uh, so back her, I'm sorry, so back her catalog to a private equity firm called Shamrock Capital for $300 million. So he made $300 million. And then in the interview he did, he did later ex- expressed regret over the situation and he clarified that he would have did it in a different way had it been now 
But I'm hearing that they were beefing. There was a lot of pettiness going on. Um, so it's, it's, it's getting very interesting to see how a lot of this stuff play out, in my opinion. So we'll see. But there's something going on. I don't know. I don't know if it's a scandal or what. But anytime a, gun, a bunch of people have a mass exodus, it gets weird. So that's where I'm at. Now, I must talk about this. For people, you know, I've been on my big, huge airlines tip about American Airlines and my faves and all that. Well, for people who like Spirit, you know, listen. Spirit Airlines has apparently agreed to pay $8.25 million to settle a class action lawsuit that was by passengers who said that this airlines blindsided them with surprise carry-on bag fees and other things. Now, y'all remember when this happened, Spirit is now has agreed to settle. You might be eligible for, you know, financial compensation for your damages. As a girl who has not been on on Spirit in over what well, I think nearly a decade, I am not probably going to get this. I don't ride Spirit, but just in case you were somebody who rode Spirit and had to get caught up in this troop, there is a class action lawsuit that's been filed. It's been done. And now they've agreed to pay $8.25 million. So you might be able to get some of those coins potentially in this class action lawsuit. But, you know, listen, I always knew from the jump with, with Spirit Airlines that something was not in, something was was weird. And I couldn't put my finger on it exactly. But now it's become obvious that these people ain't got their shit together. Like what they were doing was not okay. All I keep telling people all the time. All these financial schemes, all these like dirty tricks with money and playing people's shit. Like eventually people are going, you're going to get fucked up out here. You got to be respecting people's money. And so that's what I, I, I see there. But very interesting, to say the least. But I got to be real with y'all about this particular issue because we did talk a lot about the podcast. I'm so disappointed in Kiki Palmer. I love her as a person, still do. But y'all, she played in our face and I'm over it. I'm over I'm just, she's better than this. So, you know, her birthday just passed. She's a Virgo, y'all. Mm. And she did a, a Instagram live with her baby father, Darius Dalton. And, you know, they're, he took her on a date. And they're talking and all this. And was like, oh, this is cute. You know, this is why I can never get invested and celebrities' relationships and drama. And to even take it up a notch, okay? One of the things that annoy me about these celebrities and this shit is that you all put us in your drama. You drag us into it. You sell shit. You use stunts. And then it's all a stunt to sell and promote and market something. And to be honest, these types of stunts are so old and so tired and through. Life is just too short for this type of bullshit. Like... You know, there was a time when we were younger, I guess when I was younger, where that kind of stuff was funny and entertaining. But now it's just stupid. Like, I look at Darius Dalton like, you're, you're corny. And you know what? It doesn't actually clarify or address his past history of problematic ass social media posts. And the fact that Kiki Palmer isn't addressing that and freeing herself from that, girl, you like dumpster fire. And you know what? I don't like that. I hate that for you, sis. And the fact that she did all of that, he did all of that, they did all of that. For what? For what? Like, it's just, it's just, 
We don't even know your business. We don't care no more, Kiki. No, we don't care. I don't care. Be with that dumbass if you want. Keep that in the closet. Keep on the down low. Do what you got to do. Like, it don't make you exciting. It's not cool no more. It was only cool if you left him. But the fact that you're back with his trifling ass, in spite of his toxic ass ways, girl, I'm disappointed. Mm, bummer. Now, speaking about interesting conversations, this week in Ask Ernest was an interesting question that was posed. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to again do my best not to read names because sometimes people be naming names like y'all. Stop telling me names of your exes. I know y'all want to blast them. That's not what I do. I don't blast exes. I don't blast enemies. We keep it neutral for the sake of having the show. Not keep it neutral. Ha <laughs> ha. You see what I did there? We are not naming names on the podcast for liability issues. We're not doing lawsuits. We're not doing that. Not naming names. All right. So here it goes. Hey, Ernest, I hope all is well. I hope that this week you can choose my question for Ask Ernest. Many years ago, when I was single and much younger, I was in a situationship in parentheses, with a guy who I really liked and I was feeling. He's from North Philly. I'm from Germantown. We've been having an on and off conversation relationship. We messed around one time, but we didn't mess around multiple times. We only, you know, did a couple of things that were, okay, I'm not going to read all that part. That's a little messy. But um, basically, they made it clear that it wasn't, well, that's a little nasty too. They did sexual things without doing the thing thing. Okay, we're going to move forward. Y'all let it tell me every detail, but I appreciate it. So they said during the time they had an on and off relationship with the with the person they was dating. Um, I only was around to talk to them and be friends with them. We had a connection. We did have feelings for each other. Um, but for whatever reason, we could never work it out and have a real relationship and do anything um, to take it to the next level. Eventually, I get to a point where I am noticing that because we couldn't have a relationship or I wasn't ready at the time, they decided that they wanted to pursue something with their their ex again. I was a little upset, but I couldn't be mad because I knew that at the end of the day, I wasn't ready to be in a relationship with them. So while they were dating them, I tried to stay my distance. And one time, their person, their lover, but not, I'm trying my best not to, you know, the person that was dating the person contacted me by phone, cursed me out, was asking me, was I still messing with their man? And we were arguing. It was a situation. Of course, at that time I was not, there was nothing going on. I left them alone. Fast forward to a couple of months later, we were hanging out. Um, I was hanging out for, for, I was hanging out with my friends and I got a text message from the boy. And let me clarify this. Not the person, not the the the, the person that person relationship with, with the person they've been, the person they did the non-sexual, the, 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 you know, the one they was messing around with, the one they were with, not the partner of that person. So they hit me up and said they wanted to talk to me. They came to my house drunk, um, trying to hold me and talk to me. We didn't have sex, but it began to rekindle feelings. They eventually broke up with the person they was with. 
we end up not talking for a while and I moved on. Years later, I'm now having a job promotion. I'm successful. People know who I am. I'm not disclosing who the person is. Try my hardest not to. But they said they're now in a position where they have some notoriety around their name. People know are starting to know who they are. They're starting to get visibility. They said because of their visibility, they do not, they 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 are scared to date in public and date and meet new people because they feel like it could be a liability. But they said this person has returned. They seem to have learned their lessons from the past. They are feeling them, but they don't know if they should get in pursuit of this relationship with them now that they're in this space or should they move on altogether? All right. Here's my thoughts. I am a firm believer that what's in the past, leave it there. As somebody who, in my past, when I was dating, and I was not taking off the market, there was a boy I dealt with at the time I was in college. You know, we was on again, off again. Just It was just not a very healthy relationship as far as just like the, the emotional labor, it, it exhausted me. At some point, I was, as I entered my senior year in college, I was at a place where I finally healed. I was finally in a place where, you know, I was looking to the future. This person, this guy, um, they claimed to have been in a position where they were well, that they were great, they were good, and that they were in a passionate pursuit to explore different options. And also, they had grown up some. So they see me and they come to me at this space of my life where I was at a good place. And because I was familiar with them, I was like, ooh, you know, what would it look like for us to rekindle that lad, that, that lost love? Like, what would it look like if we, you know, decided to, you know, try to consider doing this again? And something in me felt like there was this weird moment where I was like, you know, I took time to heal myself completely from the hurt that you gave me. And now you're ready to be back in my life. Even though you've learned some new things, even though I've learned some new things, I don't think you deserve me. And that's where I was standing with. I was like, you don't deserve me. You, you, you might've recovered. You might've gotten better as a person, but you don't deserve me. And I think that stuck with me that, who I am as a new person and who I've been and how I healed the next person in my life, a new person deserves this earnest, deserves this version of earnest. And that person was Mr. Johnson. And that's how we got together. Well, that's what made me lean into them rather than going back to my past. I say this to you. You was in a situation with this dude. You dealt with all these things with this dude. Yes, this person is comfortable, but I don't think you, they deserve you because whatever you did in that time from when you did with all the drama and all the confusion, the issues, don't a new person deserves a new shot at the new you? And while I get that you're high profile or people might know who you are or whatever, and you're scared to take that risk, it's better to give a new person a shot 
to give an old person a shot at what you have to repair yourself from. I just feel like it's counterproductive. This reminds me of Rihanna and Chris Brown. Rihanna went through hell for all the shit she went through with Chris Brown. And then she got with him on the tip of trying to make it seem like what they were doing was us against the world. We love each other. It's complicated. But in the end, Rihanna deserved a new person. Rihanna did, Chris Brown did not deserve her. He didn't deserve her. He did not deserve Rihanna with a more successful career, with a rebound career, with relevancy, killed Rihanna. He didn't deserve that. And so I'm saying to you that this person that you're talking about, they don't deserve you. They don't deserve the the, the new you. They don't deserve that. And so I want you to be thoughtful about how you're, you know you navigate your new life um, because everybody's not deserving of your new success story. Everybody doesn't deserve to have all of those things from you. So I just want people to be thoughtful. And I want you to be thoughtful. I want you to be strategic. And, and I want you to think about all of these experiences um, as you navigate dating. Because I get it. You, you want to be protected. You want comfort. But you also deserve care. So. That's my thought. That's my my piece of advice. You know, you can take it or leave it. <laughs> but that's a half. So, this week I did not go to the movies, but I did go to theater. I went to the Kimmel Center to finally see The Lion King, the Broadway version, the, the, the theatrical show. The show that's been around for 25 plus years. I loved it. I loved it. I know, I know I'm late to the party. Listen... When you go to Broadway as a girl like myself, you don't want to go see what everybody's seeing. So I was always running from The Lion King because I was like, I want to be able to see something that's, you know, new and hip and creative. But I loved it. The Lion King was great. Mr. Johnson and I went. It was a fabulous time. It's visually stunning. They're running till like mid-September. So if you have not gotten a ticket to go see it, go. Go go get tickets. Go see the show. Like, it's 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 just it's just a great show. It's so nostalgic. It's fun. They had cool songs and music. The energy was great. Oh, I love the musical. It was so good. Um, and visually stunning. Visually stunning. I love the youth. Little Simba, little Nala were like they stole the show for me. And Scar stole the show for me as well. Scar was phenomenal. Um, definitely stole the show for me as well. Great acting. Um, one of the things I loved is that I did bring my 16 ounce, ounce Kimmel cup, the double shot, and they have this Lion King themed punch that they're serving out there. Good punch, y'all. Real strong, real good, real sweet and fruit. I love a good little punch that is good with some, with some punch, with a good punch, with a good, um, punch in the punch, a kick, I guess. It was really good. It was called, I can't remember what it was. Was it the Hakuna Matata? I think they had a, they had a Kuna Matata a cocktail at one at one restaurant at the at the Volver. but there it was some type of Nala's drink that they called it, but it was so good, um, highly recommended. And I think they have a version that's not alcoholic for kids and one that is spiked for adults. So do as you may with it. But it was a very good show. Really loved it. Lion King was was pretty damn fantastic. Um, as far as music go. 
interesting stuff is happening. First of all, let me just say this. I don't know if I said this before, but listening to Cruel Summer on the radio in 2023 is like taking me out. The song is four years old. It's by Taylor Swift. It was on her album Lover. And it is on the top five of the Billboard charts. It was number three like last week or, or the week before. Now it's number four on the Billboard charts. But Cruel Summer is on the top five of the Billboard charts. And it's four years old. I always knew Cruel Summer was a hit. I wish she would have dropped that song when she had a chance because that would have been a number one hit for her. But the fact that it's climbing up the charts higher than any of her new songs right now is fantastic because that is pop perfection. Cruel Summer, it's you. Nothing sounds as you. Me to my body. I'm sorry. I just, I can't help myself, Okay. It's it's a great song. If you've not heard Cruel Summer, listen to it. Get obsessed like I was. Um, because it's it's yes. Um Oh, it's new. The shape of your body is blue. The feeling I got it's oh, oh it's a cruel summer. It's cool. That's what I'm telling no rules. Unbreakable heaven, it's ooh, oh, it's a cruel summer with you. Sorry, I just, I love that song. I really love that song. That's like one, of, I think that's like my favorite song off of the Lover album. The Lover album, I don't know if it aged as well compared to her other albums, but it was a moment. What was on that album that I really liked a lot? Oh, I love London Boy. Oh yeah, London Boy was good too. But anyway. You know, Swifties unite. Anyway, love Cruel Summer. Love that song. It's on the charts. But what else is on the charts is a song called Rich Men of North Richmond, which is complicated. It's some folksy song that is by a guy named Oliver Anthony. It's a big deal because the song is number one on the charts. And this man has never had any chart history. This is the first time a song just came on the Billboard Hot 100 at number one and had no prior album label, no prior presence in the Billboard charts. It came out of nowhere, y'all. Um, it's been mass-streamed. It's become a big hit. Now, the background of this song is interesting, right? This Richmond of North Richmond, the song has basically become the battle cry for a lot of folks who are, you know, working class. Well, let me be clear. I don't want to say redneck working class folk, but it's this 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 white man with this really loud red beard. You know, it's giving where were you on January 6th. But basically it's a country, um, it's a country folk song. People are describing it as a right-wing anthem, an everyman anthem, a blue-collar anthem. It's giving insurrectionist vibes, apparently. Um, but however, Anthony, okay, the the artist, he has made it clear publicly that this is not that. Now, let me tell you about the song and the concept. It is basically, the song was uploaded in August, on August 8th, 2023, this year. It received over 5 million views in the first three days, but it debuted at number one, and he's the first artist to debut atop the charts without any prior chart history at any form. So what I'm telling you all is that this man has never been on the charts at all. He came from nowhere and he debuts at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 because of the viralness of the song. So that's a very big fucking deal, y'all. This is, no one's ever heard of this man. 
heard his music. He's never had a presence, y'all. Never been on the radio. And he's got the number one fucking song in the country. Shit. So here's the thing, though. A lot of white people um, have been really, like, le like, let's be clear, conservatives and folks have been really out here, you know, talking. Now, a lot of his lyrics is going off. He's talking about, you know, low wages, food poverty, high inflation, high taxes, child trafficking. He throws a shot at Jeffrey Epstein saying that politicians are looking for out for minors on an island somewhere. Woo, he threw that shade. He's talking about centralization of power. People want to have total control. He's talking about welfare abuse. People received it as the obese milk and welfare. But he's went to clarify that that's not how he meant it. But the song has become wild. And so the thing about this song is they brought it up at the Republican presidential primary whatever debate. And the narrative has been publicly that a lot of people have been thinking that this song is a song that's being embraced by the far right and conservatives because of the way they look at this man, he looks like he's one of them. Well, he is saying, no, nah, fuck that shit. He's like, no, this song is about all of them. He's talking about everybody. He He's not talking about, he's speaking against the current political system and it includes Republicans. And the problem with Republicans is that they're just so, they're so racist that they think that any person as some Yankee doodle, middle America white person that talks about these issues means that they're a part of their party. No, this man is like, you politicians across the board is fucked up and he is critical of all of them and he's not playing aside apparently on that. So it's been interesting um, observing what was going to happen. And this is what he said though, because he had to address this because he started to notice that there was a lot of people on the far right acting like he was speaking for them. He said, it was funny singing my song at the presidential debate because I wrote that song about those people, you know? That song is written about the people on that stage and a lot more too. Not just them, but definitely them. He also clarified that he doesn't support Biden either. Fox News said they contacted Anthony prior to the debate and received permission to play the song. Mm. 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 So, like I said before, the song debuted number one on Billboard Hot 100. He was the first artist to do this. He's also the third unsigned artist to have a number one single in the chart. So, in 1994, there was an artist named Lisa Loeb who had a song called Stay, I Miss You. Um, Malcolm Moore and Ryan Lewis, you know, they had the song Can't Hold Us in Thrift Shop in 2013. Um, but he's also apparently the first solo male artist to reach both the Hot 100 and the country, Hot Country song simultaneously on his debut week. So he's doing a lot of interesting things on these charts. The industry is talking about it. Um, you know, it's, yes. I did not know that Malcolm and Ryan Lewis was unsigned artist and got number one hits. Who would have known? Well, who cares about Malcolm Moore at this point? But anyway. Lisa Loeb, Stay I Miss You from 1994. We ain't seen that since 94. Interesting. Well, anyway. Iggy Azalea is trying to make a comeback. I haven't really heard her new music. Don't want to listen to her new music. I mean, I thought we left her back in 2014, to be honest. But she's trying to make a musical comeback. Um, her whole look, her whole sound is giving a copycat version of Cardi B. The look, the hair... Some of the, the the fashion, it just looks manufactured. All of it looks like manufactured Cardi B. Like when I look at the when I saw the video, I was like, 
This is Cardi B. What, what are you doing? Who asks for this? Who's buying this? I hope it flops. And I'll leave it at that. Now, as far as some good TV goes, okay, y'all, I have been deep in watching Love and Hip Hop Miami and Love and Hip Hop Atlanta, and Jocelyn's Cabaret has been cute. But, y'all, I have to say, what the hell is going on with all these reality TV show stars? I'm hearing reports that Bambi and Erica, uh, Erica Mena and uh, Bambi, was in a club, got arrested with another relevant, irrelevant reality star. They got arrested for fighting in a club. Tommy Lee got arrested around drug use. Um, Love and Hip Hop Miami. I've been, wa- oh, I've been watching Love and Hip Hop Miami, right? And so there's a guy on there named Gunplay, right? Who, on this recent episode, he introduces us to his new girlfriend. She's like, I guess, getting her law degree. She's, you know, got her bachelor's degree. Um, I think she was a Hampton. She's like this smart girl. They're playing the, you know, smart college girl with the hood gangster do. And in my mind, I was like, this never works out well. That that educated goon that the girls used to say they want. <laughs> it never works. Like nobody, no, no, nobody exists in that totality. And I'm going to tell you what happens next, but, like, what's shocking is that, like, I'm looking at her, like, Gunplay cuts his hair off. You know, he's had these long-ass, like, big, huge locks. He cuts his hair off. He's on the show saying he's a new guy. He's sober. He's not doing drugs no more. Earlier in the se- in the series, not on this season, but in previous seasons, he was fighting drug addiction. He was talking about how he was fighting his demons. He had a girlfriend at the time on that show. It didn't work out between them because he was just doing too much. He was he was just fucking up. But it seemed like since then he's been trying to be this new man, this new guy, and trying to clean up his act or whatever. And so he gets with this girl, and and now this 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 college educated girl. She's got her she got a certificate from Harvard. Like they're playing up that she's this smart, pretty, good girl with this rough on the edges guy and like this love affair and. He's acting like, oh, you know, I'm learning from you and I'm being better. It's so many subtle, like, very paternalistic, very patriarchal things wrong with that model. But okay, right? And it's so racist and just, uh. Anyway, so he's on that show. And I'm watching this. And I'm just like, okay, that's interesting. But what makes it crazy and wild is that, you know, these reality show episodes are filmed, like, early, super early. Like, way before they, you know, they, they, they've been shot weeks and then months in advance. Well, this week, he is arrested on domestic charges and violence and drug violence and all these other issues. And meanwhile, she has publicized that she, you know, she told her followers, like, I'm leaving him. He's abusive. My child was scared. There was like, I guess, guns and knives and things involved. And she was scared for her life and she can't, she can't be with him and yada, yada, yada. She's left him. So she said she's filing for divorce. So I'm sitting here and I'm not victim blaming because I'm not trying to say that's what you get for dating a girl. I mean, you date a guy in gunplay. But it was interesting because on the show, this this so far, the mother does not approve of him. The mother was concerned about him. And she, the whole storyline is on this Romeo and Juliet, the world don't want to see us together. Well, baby, now we know why the world doesn't. I don't fault her for loving who she loved. And I'm not going to say this is what you get for dating something like this. But this should be a cautionary tale to a lot of women, smart, educated women. I'm telling you as an educated brother, right? 
that if you're trying to pursue this fantasy, this pornographic fantasy, because I do believe these are, a lot of these fantasies are pornographic. They're, 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 they're you, and I'm going to say this is a black queer man. I'm going to, I'm going to put it on the table. I'm going to put it on the floor, as they say. You know, when I was single and I was out here in the world, one of the things that was very interesting to me was I was always trying to figure out where was this desire to see black men as hyper-masculine and also very street and hip-hop, homoerotic in that way. Where did this come from that there was this desire to see, you know, specifically black gay men, you know, either be super hyper-masculine and very gangster and very, you know, whatever that vibe is, sexually appealing versus the neutrality, right? And what I found is that a lot of that was coming from porn, that a lot of the stereotypes in pornography, and this is me on a research tip that I was, I remember discussing this in college, that like a lot of black queer porn that was out shapes these black men in very stereotypical roles. They're either these tatted up, like athletic basketball player type dudes, or they're like very gangster, rude, violent, hyper-masculine type of men and that was something that was causing attraction. And so I was noticing this trend and I was seeing the stuff that people were saying. So when I was hearing these terms that white people were using in gay nightclubs, but big black cock, BBC, that type of rhetoric that does permeate in cishead, you know, pornography as well. But there was these stereotypes around soft, docile bottoms. I'm going to get a little vulgar, but I'm here that there is a submission around soft and, and and very, you know, very, you know, docile. And there was a, a connection between light skinness and colorism where these quote unquote bottoms would be light skinned and very feminine and very delicate and docile. And that these tops were who were, you know, dominant in the, in the sexual position were very dark and tall and very gangster. And they would replicate the images of basketball players and rappers and all of the culture that comes with that stereotype. And that this would lead to sexual, you know, you know, desire. And that that was the most popular type of sexually dominant figure that we were seeing in pop culture that permeates through pornography and both. Oh my God, the research is crazy. There are people that have been doing research on this and I have been talking to, to people that have been talked about this. And this permeates in pop culture and society. This permeates in dating culture. It permeates in the way that even black gay men in queer society are matching that type of energy. That they feel like if I want to be desirable in this way, I got if I'm a top, I got to talk like a certain way, look a certain way. Like they got to play into that homoeroticism, even though it does not match who they are. And so now you're living in a world, right, where you're seeing black gay men walk around and say. I want a man that could do both. They they are like, I'm going to be smart and I got to get me a big dick, you know, tall, strong, muscular gay man that is going to be pretty much all into just fucking me violently without having any feelings, emotions or context. Like there is something there. Right. And so to me, what I've noticed is that we see the role of pornography in pop culture, in music videos, and there's an obsession with these ideas of playing into these tropes. And there are people I know who are in my friend circle that I've had to personally unpack and confront of saying, where is these ideals coming from? I've even confronted them in my own right. Like the person that I am married to doesn't fit that stereotype and I don't fit that stereotype for him. We're not going to discuss what goes on in the bedroom, but it's just that we don't fit the stereotypes that are often assigned to black queer men. 
And a lot of people have the stereotypes about what is a position, what is who, and who do what. And it's, and you know, people can joke about those things and understand the nuances of it, but there are people that lean into that and it plays out. And so to me, there is this, there has been a trope of educated women, black women, you know, specifically that have, you know, looked at certain men in a black men in a very polar, in a very like, um, commodifying way of viewing them as a tool for sexual pleasure and, you know, vibes of that type of energy. And there's an earned qualityness in it. The same way that the massage noir comes within black men where they feel like, oh, I want to get a light-skinned woman who isn't smart, that don't talk, that's like a stripper, that has a big booty, that has no intellectualness to her, doesn't have any independence, but basically somebody that they can control, right? There is tropes rooted in that based on colorism, based on pornographic fantasy. And a lot of music artists in particular play into the pornographic fantasy, which is why you're starting to see a lot of these artists look like porn stars and porn stars looking like them because there is a, there's an idea around allure. It's instant gratification. It's, it's tantalizing. And it's very much so harmful and problematic in how this manifests and how people date and, and get involved because the girls are like, I want a gangster because you didn't saw you know, that porn star Jason Love somewhere, and you're like, I want a guy like Jason Love. Okay, so that guy like Jason Love who's sleeping with a bunch of white women in his, his films, you want that man, right? Because you like his body, you like all that. But is that kind of Jason Love persona, that that look, that image of that type of man, do you think that that man in real life with those qualities is not only going to provide sex to you, but can also be violent and problematic? And so the problem is, how do you tell people to divorce and to separate their fantasies in that way to understand the real real life experience of those type of people is not those people that you're not going to find a goon that's hella violent that's going to somehow magically love you and caress you and provide for you. And there's not going to be other issues that's going to come there. Like, it doesn't work. You're not going to find the woke, sexy misogynist. It just does not work. And so I say all that to say, interesting. Now, um, in wrapping up and concluding, you know, this week is going to be an interesting week. There's a lot on my agenda in many good ways. There's going to be some cool surprises, some cool announcements that's going to come out, um, which I'm personally excited for. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the thrills. I'm enjoying everything. I'm, I'm taking time to just relax and to breathe and enjoy my, the rest of, of August. You know, next week when I'm back on air, it'll be September. It'll be a brand new month. Um, interesting enough, there's going to be a Monday off. Next Monday is Labor Day. Um, I'm still going to run my podcast, but I love the fact that I'm going to be able to take a breather and to reset and to recharge um, because, you know, because next week, this weekend is a, is Atlantic City. My husband and I are having an incredible weekend. We're going to have some incredible fun and we're going to have a lot of good times. And so it'll be great because Labor Day, you all can listen next week is Labor Day. So you got to listen to my new episode, my new podcast episode while you are at home chilling. 
I'm wondering, do anybody do barbecues anything for Labor Day? I can't recall. There's no Maine America this year, which is really interesting. So it's like, what is a Labor Day weekend without Maine America in Philadelphia? That's going to be interesting to say the least. But there's just so many other great surprises as we get ready for NLGGA convention to come to Philly next month. September is coming next week. You know, when I come back, it's a return to fall. This is the last summer-esque episode of Earnestly Speaking. And it's been a great summer. And fall is about to light. It's about to fire up, as y'all can see. Y'all can tell. It's about to be some a lot of shit. Okay. Part two of this season. Okay. Of season Five is about to take off and it's going to be great. It's going to be a bumpy ride. It's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. And as always, be well and be best. Earnestly Speaking is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. To stay up to date with the latest on the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Ernest Owens. Use the hashtag Earnestly Speaking to tell me what you thought about this episode and check out my website at ErnestOwens.com.